0: Can I ask the kids to come up? We're going to have some time together at the front. So before you go off to your classes, kids, if you can come up here, because look what we've got. You don't see this every Sunday, do you? Whoops, I'm moving this out of the way and spilling water, hopefully not on a guitar. (laughs) Look at this. We got a tent. You were here first. Okay, come on. Guys, do you want to come in here? Come on in. Maybe we can all fit in here. Isn't this awesome? Why do you think we have a tent in the sanctuary? Why do you think we have a tent? You know what we just did? We spent lots of money on making this room beautiful. Why did we have a tent? To what? Sorry? Yeah, well, you know what? This is an opportunity for us to think about why we get together on Sunday mornings. And... What is it stinking here? These are the deep theological questions. So, do you guys know... In the Old Testament, in the Bible, God's people worshipped in a big building. Do you know what it was called? The temple, that's right. No, not Tim Hortons. God's people worshipped in the temple. Can you see up through the roof of the tent? Can you see that, that huge building? It's a picture of it on the screen there. And God's people worshipped in a temple. You can see it has big walls and there's a building right in the middle and there's walls around it right so god's people worshipped in the temple but also god's people were commanded once a year to go out in tents and that's why we got this tent here because for two weeks of the year god's people were sent out to live in tents it was called the festival of tabernacles which means tents. So they would live in tents. And you know why they did that? They did that so that they could remember that they depended on God. Do you guys like to go camping? You ever been camping? Anyone? Is it, is it? Do you guys enjoy it? Yeah. What's, what's the best thing about camping? Marshmallows. Okay, what's the worst thing? Is camping comfortable?
1: No.
0: No and yes. i got different answers. What, what about mosquitoes? You ever get been bitten by a mosquito? All the time. All the time? So camping has its downsides. And I think that's why God sent his people out to live in tents, to remind them that they depended on him and they couldn't just get too comfortable in that big temple. So today we're going to dedicate our new sanctuary. It's beautiful, isn't it? What, what should we pray for right now about this room? What do you guys want to see happen here? What would be something good that could happen here? Video games? Okay, yeah. Anything else? You guys are a tough crowd, boy. Not, not
1: trying to get
0: mosquitoes
1: on you.
0: That, for sure. We'll try to keep mosquitoes out also. Is, yeah. Is there anything that you, you would like to see happen in our church? Something good that could happen? Okay, we'll pray for no mosquitoes. Let's pray together. Okay, dear God, we thank you that you have called us to worship you. And we thank you that you have given us um, resources so that we can create space dedicated for your worship. And Lord, I pray that as we dedicate our sanctuary this morning, that you would be with us, that you would guide us so that um, we understand your mission sending us out of this place, even as you gather us here to worship. So go with these kids now to their classes, I pray. Bless them. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. I forgot to pray for no mosquitoes. We'll do that later.
1: Needs the needs a rest, the kids are playing up and dance. Sister's playing in her sleep. Brothers got the night to keep you counting about. It's usually quite loud Our mum, she's so house proud Nothing ever slums her down and the music is
0: not allowed Our heart In the middle of This fun, silly song by the English ska band Madness actually makes a serious point even as it's singing about the chaos of our houses Later on in the song, they sing about our house being our castle and our keep. You heard the chorus, our house in the middle of our street. I think what this song is getting at is that where we live matters. Where we gather together in our homes matters. Your house matters. It's at the center of your life. You sleep there, you eat there. So much of what happens takes place there. Now, as Christians, we have two houses, if you want to think of it that way. You have your house or your apartment where you live, but this is our house also. We call it a house of worship sometimes. It's where we gather as God's people in this local congregation we call Courtright. It's not the church. Even though we sometimes talk that way, right? We talk about going to church, but I think we know, I hope we know that the building itself is not the church, but the building is important and not just on Sunday mornings either. To quote the song we just heard by Madness, our house, it has a crowd. There's always something happening and it's usually quite loud. If you've been around here on a Friday night when the youth group is meeting, you'll know that's true. And actually, throughout the week, you may know that this building is busy. There's always something happening. There are rental groups in, there are church groups, ministries of various kinds taking place. And so today, uh, as part of our service today, we're going to be dedicating this renovated sanctuary. Everything is here now. The hearing aid system arrived just this past week. The chairs have been here. This is your third week of having the blessed experience of sinking into a soft chair. It's like a little moment at the spa, isn't it? I've made a list of those of you who have dozed off, and I'll be, I'll, the elders will be coming to visit you shortly. We have new carpet as well. We have a new sound booth, we have 40% greater capacity, the ceiling is brighter, the space is more welcoming along with the, the rooms at the back, you haven't had a chance to look in there, you might want to do so after the service, but all of this serves one purpose and that is to lead us into the presence of God as we worship together. And so today, as we dedicate the sanctuary, I want to invite you to, during the sermon, and perhaps after, to write down some of your hopes and your dreams for this space. And we're going to collect these little pieces of paper. Some of you might have picked them up on the way in. Uh, you can see people at the back will be distributing them. If you haven't got one, hold up your hand. If you'd like to be part of this, there are pens and pencils as well. I'm going to invite you to write down something that you would like to see happen. If you write, no mosquitoes, I'll kill you. <laughs> Mental note to never mention mosquitoes in the children's story again. So we're going to collect those later, and we're going to pray those. Justin will lead us in the prayers of the people uh, towards the end of the service, and we're going to pray these hopes and dreams. And so I encourage you to, to be creative. What would you love to see happen in this space? And then as we are sent out of this space, On Mission, the mission that God calls us to, to share his love with the world. We believe that God welcomes us into his house, even though we are all, every one of us, runaways. We've all turned our backs on God. We've all set out to pursue our own independence, our own self-interest. But thanks to Jesus, we can come home to the one place that we were supposed to be the whole time. And I don't mean this room. I mean with God, close to him, enjoying his love, receiving his grace and truth, and filled with his spirit, as we're called to be the body of Christ together. So today we're going to reflect on what it means to be at home with God. And we're going to do that by reading Hebrews chapter 10. But first of all, let's pray. Dear God, we thank you that... You always speak truth to us. And Lord, you lay the groundwork for that truth with your grace. And so we ask today for more of your grace and more of your truth. Holy Spirit, uh, we are coming from all kinds of different places this morning. Some of us just really unexcited about today and maybe complacent about our lives, others of us from a place of great difficulty and distress, others just content, happy with life. I pray that you would shake up those who need to be shaken. I pray that you would comfort those who need to be comforted. I pray that you would shine your light into our church, that you would give every one of us your life, your blessing. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. So we're going to read from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 25. And before I start, I'll say this is a very densely packed reading, and we're going to unpack it. As we reflect on it, I'll just start with a a couple of comments to say this, this, these seven verses really sum up the whole of the book of Hebrews. It begins, the reading begins, and so. Uh, Other translations say, therefore. Whenever you see a therefore and and so, you know it's building off of something that's preceded it. There are a lot of references here to the temple. We will talk about that. If you're not familiar with Jewish worship, this is core to understanding this passage. Let's read it then. And so, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place, that's the very presence of God, because of the blood of Jesus. By his death, Jesus opened a new and living way through the curtain into the most holy place. That's a reference to a room in the temple. And since we have a great high priest who rules over God's house, that would be Jesus, let us draw near to God with sincere hearts, fully trusting him. For our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean, and our bodies have been washed with pure water. Let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm. For God can be trusted to keep his promise. Let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. And let us not give up meeting together as some people do, but let us encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. This is the word of the Lord. So, so what is church? We've said it's not the building. If you had to offer up a definition of church, could you do that? One way that I like to get people thinking about how they would answer that question and reflecting on church is by asking, what is a great experience of Christian community that you've had in your life, whether recently or a long time ago? This reading from Hebrews 10 reminds me of a great experience of Christian community That I had years ago. I was a new believer when I moved to Beijing to study Mandarin in my mid-twenties. And after arriving in China, I joined up with uh, the International Church in Beijing. And I also joined a small group Bible study. And that's where I started to grow in my faith like I never imagined possible. In our small group that year, we studied Leviticus and Hebrews. I don't know if you're familiar with Leviticus, but Leviticus is without a doubt the worst book of the Bible for a new Christian to read. Notably, it has these two long chapters that are dedicated to skin disease, molds, and mildew. Edifying stuff, right? But the leaders of our group were gifted teachers, and you really do need Leviticus to understand Hebrews in a way. You need the foundation of the temple, the worship of the Jewish people to understand our Christian faith. So we need Hebrews, I think, to go deeper in our understanding of Jesus Christ and the difference he makes for us. This passage we've read sums up the whole of the book of Hebrews. Actually, you could say it sums up Christian faith as well. And it does that in three broad points. First of all, it says that our faith comes through a new and living way that is Jesus. Secondly, it invites us to respond to the reality of Jesus by drawing near to him, to God in prayer. And third, it invites us to participate in a life together in Christ. In other words, we do this in community as we encourage one another. So the first half of this passage we read tells us what God has done for us, and the second half focuses on our response to Him. The first half is the difference Jesus makes, and we grasp that through understanding. We grasp that by thinking. You can, maybe you can think of it as the the theological foundation for what comes in the practice of the Christian life. But the second half is equally important, maybe more so. And that is the action, the practice, the life that comes with Christian discipleship. It's praying and it's going. It's being sent. So the two sides in this passage are inseparable. Being a Christian demands both of them. Another way to think of this passage is that it's a call to think, to pray, and to go. Now, some of us might prefer to think about Christian faith. Maybe you're one of those people who who really enjoys reasoning things through, trying to understand things. Some of us prefer to be in prayer, the heart of the faith, the emotional life of the Christian. Others of us are people of action, and we just prefer to go. Give us a job to do. We're out the door with a casserole for someone. We're ready to start some new initiative. We're on mission. But we need every part of the Christian life. So faith and practice must come together. Faith without action is not faith at all. And next week, we start a new sermon series in the book of James, and we will see that Christian faith needs to be acted out in our lives. And prayer is what brings all of this together, I would say. So Hebrews focuses most of all on Jesus. The foundation of this passage and of our faith is the unique significance of Christ. God always comes first. And what has he done for us? Well, the author of Hebrews spells it out. First of all, he highlights the perfect holiness of God. The most holy place is the part of the temple where the presence and glory of God dwelled. Second of all, the author refers to the blood of Jesus, to this new and living way to God, that it's thanks to the death, which is what the blood represents, it's thanks to Jesus' death at the cross that we can approach God at all. And finally, Jesus shows up as a great priest. Jesus shows up as the one who is between us and God, who is a mediator, if you want to think of it that way who carries us to God because we can't get there on our own. Jesus meets the condition for access to God where we could not. I think most of us come to worship services, at least at some level, wanting to be entertained. I don't know if you came this morning with a particular expectation in mind, but I think that if we were to be honest, we'd say, yeah, the music better be good or... Yeah, there better be a tent or I'm going to be mad. No mosquitoes it's essential to, to be having a good experience in worship. We talk about having a personal relationship with God, but I think it's easy for us to forget about how awesome the God of the universe is and how awe-inspiring his presence should be to us. For Jews, an approach to God happened in the holiest part of the temple. So that tall structure in the middle of the larger courtyard would have been the Holy of Holies. And in a room within that building, the high priest, once a year on the Day of Atonement what Jews call Yom Kippur, would approach God. And it was a thick curtain that sealed off the presence of God. And when the high priest went into the presence of God on this one day, they would even tie a rope to his ankle in case something happened so they could pull him out. Now, do we think of worship as anything remotely like that? Do we think of worship as dangerous? Did you come here this morning thinking something might happen that could not only disrupt your life, but would lead to people needing you to, to carry you out of this room? I don't know. I doubt it. I didn't, I can tell you that. The Jewish Christians to whom this letter was written needed to grasp that Jesus is the perfect, all sufficient sacrifice, and that through him we can actually approach God. That would have been really hard for them to understand. I think the challenge we have today is to not take the reality that we can draw near to God for granted. Jesus died to open a new and living way for us, but that's not the end of the story. Jesus is also our high priest. I sometimes will have coffee with people who who are prepared to be honest and share with me that they really struggle in their prayer life, that they find it hard to have a relationship with God that feels real, that is resonant with emotion, that is something that is growing and alive for them. Well, this is where Jesus offers himself as our high priest. And that might seem like kind of an obscure reference to an aspect of Jewish worship from thousands of years ago, but I had my eyes open to this years ago by a theologian named Louis Burkhoff, um, one of the great Dutch Reformed giants of theology. And in, what, in his systematic theology, this really hard-to-read book, I came across uh, a paragraph that just took my breath away and really forever changed my understanding of Jesus. He writes this, he says, It's a consoling thought that Christ is praying for us, even when we're negligent in our prayer life that he's presenting to the Father those spiritual needs which were not present to our minds and which we often neglect to include in our prayer life, that he prays for our protection against the dangers of which we are not even conscious and against enemies which threaten us, though we do not notice it. He is praying that our faith may not cease and that we may come out victorious in the end. So our prayers or our lack of prayers start with the prayer life of Jesus, who never stops praying, who never stops interceding for us, wanting our faith to grow for us to come out victorious in the end. So we have to think, we have to wrestle with the theology of what it means to be a Christian, to grasp the truth of what God has done for us in Jesus. And that's what these first few verses of this passage we've read do for us. But it's not enough to think. We also need to pray. We also need to take the step of drawing near to God. Verse 22 says, Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, and having our bodies washed with pure water. And then it goes on. I think the thing that stops us from praying, the thing that we struggle most with in our prayer life is guilt. I was talking to somebody recently about how uh, we talk about the Christian life at Courtright, and they suggested that maybe there's more of an emphasis on sin, more of an emphasis on guilt uh, than I want to believe. I hope that when you hear the gospel presented, the Bible read and taught when we worship together here. What you understand most of all is that we are free in Christ, that we are forgiven people. But the reality is that we do struggle with guilt all the time. I love the way that uh, one person describes a Puritan. A Puritan is kind of shorthand for a legalistic Christian. H.L. Mencken says a Puritan is a person with a haunting fear that someone somewhere is happy. (laughs) Wouldn't that be terrible if someone somewhere was happy? I mean, is that what people think of Christians, that we have that attitude? I hope not. We're told in our culture that guilt is bad and we should get rid of it as quickly as possible. We need to feel good about ourselves. Self-esteem is the priority. One of my favorite films is The Help, based on a novel by Kathryn Stockett. In that film, Abilene Clark is a black woman facing racism and working as a maid in Jackson, Mississippi, in the early 1960s, just as the civil rights movement was getting going. And she raises white children for a living. In one scene, she's talking to a four-year-old girl, Mae Mobley, who is totally neglected by her white parents and worse, by her birth mother. And she bounces the child on her lap and she says to her, you is kind, you is smart, you is important. And she makes this little girl repeat those words back to her. And in that moment, in one of the more moving scenes in a film that I've seen over the last 10 years, Abilene Clark was speaking love into that little girl. And she made it her mission to do that to all the white children she took care of, even though she was treated terribly as a maid, and it would have been natural for her to want to get back at her employer by taking it out on their kids. You was kind, you was smart, you was important. Do we believe that about ourselves? We know that we're created in the image of God. And Hebrews 10 helps us to see ourselves as God sees us. Hebrews 10, in a way, is a love letter to us, like Abilene Clark spoke to that little girl. But it doesn't start with self-esteem. It starts with the esteem that only Jesus can attain and that he imparts to us. My kids over the years occasionally have said unkind things to each other. I know that's a big shock for all of you to hear that. I think the worst word I've ever heard my kids say to each other is this word loser. There are a lot of words that are more famous for being bad words, but something inside of me just can't handle that word loser. I think because it's so dismissive of other people when we call them that. It's a nasty nasty word. But I think we call ourselves that word all the time. We dwell on our failures and even though we get good at denying it our guilt still surfaces. We know we're not kind, we don't feel smart, and we see lots of other people who are more important than us. But this passage in Hebrews 10 points us to Jesus and says, in Jesus you are clothed with all the smartness, with all the importance, with all the goodness you need. And so this passage calls us by a new name. We're called Confident. Confident. Sincere, assured, faithful, cleansed, washed, unswerving, hopeful, promoters of love and good deeds, encouragers. This isn't about mustering the self-esteem that we can find within ourselves. Rather, we are new people. We are loved by God through Jesus as the holy spirit seals that love on our hearts and our minds and so we respond by drawing near to him i once heard a novelist an atheist who was uh, participating in a debate say something amazing she was they were discussing faith and and uh, the arts christianity included and she turned to the christian on the panel and she said i envy you because you have someone to forgive you. We have someone to forgive us, and so many people don't. Too little guilt through denial and through rationalization can put us at a distance from God, and too much guilt can do the same thing. In the end, God forgives us, And reminds us of our baptism. That's the reference in this passage to our hearts being sprinkled and our bodies washed with pure water. And as we claim that, God invites us to get close to him, to be honest and to find reassurance in our faith. Maybe you're here today and you're in a situation which is really challenging for you. Maybe you have doubts about your faith. Maybe you don't even believe and you're just wondering about this Christian thing. Don't focus on all the things that would hold you back from God. He promises that he is enough, that he is faithful. And so take a risk. Draw near to God. Pray whether you feel like you know how to do it or not. And we have a great opportunity right now at Courtright for you to learn about what it means to pray, what it means to hear from God. On Sunday mornings, there's another four weeks of them. At 9 a.m., we have a group, I hear there were over 30 people this morning who gathered to learn about what it means to hear from God. Because God has a blessing for every one of us. Could you receive that? Would you be willing to learn about that? Well, there's an opportunity for you You could come next week at nine in the morning. We do this together or we don't do it at all. You can pray on your own, but you can't live the Christian life alone. And as we move through these later verses in this passage, it becomes obvious that Jesus calls us away from the safety of individualism, that he wants us to get involved in each other's lives. This is practical stuff, and it starts with a simple act of meeting together like we're doing this morning. It's a choice we make. We show up, and that's when things get interesting. But when we do show up, part of the way they get interesting is that being in community is really hard. It seems like we are constantly hurting each other, even when we don't intend to even when what we're trying to do is to spur one another on towards love and good deeds. When that happens, when we get burned by someone or by the experience of church as a whole, or when we're just disappointed, we find, I think, I know I find this, that I'm tempted to pull back from that relationship or from that commitment. We're tempted to walk away. But here the author of Hebrews urges us to not give up meeting together. So there's an election that seems to take forever to come south of the border. Some of you may have heard of this. Have you noticed that we seem to be worse and worse off when it comes to disagreeing civilly with each other? Have you noticed that in our culture, politically, and in so many other ways, there's This tendency for us to separate out into extremes, that we are polarized based on all kinds of things, but especially our politics. We as the church are called to be a place where that does not happen. I love Dan White's new book, which is entitled Love Over Fear. In his book, he talks about the experience of being a pastor and how someone came to him in his church and said to him, Dan, I don't feel safe in this church knowing there are liberals here who believe so differently from me. I just can't relax and be myself. I think I'm going to have to leave the church. And then later that same week, another couple came to him and said, Dan, we don't think we're ever going to feel at home in this congregation because there are people here who hold such oppressive viewpoints. We need a church that takes sides, that stands for justice. And so he, as their pastor, tried to persuade them that the church was a place where both conservatives and liberals could be together, could be in community with one another. And he failed. But the gospel insists that we keep trying, that we keep working. The gospel says that while we were in outright rebellion against God, he moved towards us, not to crush us, not to end our rebellion that way, but with affection to forgive us. And he sent his son to love us and to rescue us. And we are called to go and do likewise. The witness of the church, says Dan White, would change overnight if it put down the mantle of defending God's reputation and instead picked up the responsibility of loving its enemies. Here's the reality, he continues. If you're conservative and you move towards progressives with affection, you will be dismissed as someone who compromises on moral issues. On the other hand, if you're progressive and you move towards those who hold conservative views, With warmth and hospitality, you will be attacked and accused of being complicit with injustice. If we're going to spur one another on toward love and good deeds, we have to be able to stay together even while we disagree, to work through our differences and to look to Christ for the unity we need. Now, you can steer clear of that in this room. What happens here on Sunday mornings is so important. But you can't avoid that in a small group. We have 16 at last count, I think it was, small groups at Courtright. Some of you are students and you're involved in small groups on campus at the University of Guelph. If you're not in a small group, it's possible that God right now is calling you to get involved in that way. To get close to other Christians in a way maybe you never have before. And to experience conflict as part of that. Conflict, after all, is normal. I was raised in a Victorian household, basically. My mom's English, she's very polite. She's wonderful. But I think I grew up thinking that conflict was bad. And I grew up as a conflict avoider. Any conflict avoiders here? Look at that. Studies show that over 90% of people are conflict avoiders. So those of you who didn't put up your hand were avoiding conflict by not putting up your hand. So well done. Jesus calls us to dive into the conflict. He says when you have a grievance against someone, go to them directly. If we did that, imagine how our church would change. I think we're already doing that really well. Can we disagree and remain in community? Yes, thanks to Jesus. We need to go back to the beginning of this passage as we come to its end. It started with the blood of Christ. When we are discontent, when we are frustrated, our natural instinct is to blame someone else. Maybe it's a friend who has let you down right now. Someone is on your mind, a relationship that's broken. Maybe your spouse has... Disappointed you like you never thought possible. Or perhaps you've been hurt by one of your parents or by your child. Jesus asks us not to focus on the face of someone we want to blame in our thoughts. Instead, He invites us to look to Him because He is the one who takes all of that pain on Himself. He goes to the cross so that we can be forgiven and so that we can be drawn out of our preoccupation with ourselves. So if you want to draw near to God, if you want to think, to pray, and to go, as the Holy Spirit calls us to, then know who you are in Christ. You are forgiven. You have been made new, born again. And you belong to God now, thanks to the new and living way that Jesus offers to every one of us. You are a precious child of God and God is calling you to return to him, to be perfectly at home with him, to know that you are loved and then to be sent out to serve and encourage others. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that the church is not a building. The church is not an institution. The church is not a set of rules, a way of life we have to live up to. The church is us together as people who are only here by your grace. The church is where we come to receive your Holy Spirit, to receive the grace of Christ to learn more how to love one another in him together. I pray that that you would more and more show us what that looks like in our own lives and move us out of our comfort zones into an active engagement with one another in this strenuous life, this free life of the Christian. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, has everyone got their little sheet of paper? Anybody, conflict avoiders perhaps, who didn't put up their hand earlier, want a little piece of paper to write your hope or your dream down on? If you do, this is your second chance. Oh, look at that. Well done. That's the closest Presbyterians come to an altar call, by the way, right there.
1: <laughs>
0: I want to tell you a story. I want to tell you a story about a church that started in 1980 when a group of people were called from other congregations in Guelph, from Knox, from St. Andrews downtown, to establish a presence in the farthest southern reaches of the city of Guelph at the time. (laughs) Can I get the first slide, please? But there was no building. And so the people who were called to do that started worshipping in a church gymnasium, in the gymnasium of University Village Public School at 55 Devere Drive. But God blessed them, and soon they outgrew that gymnasium, and they moved on. Next. Nope, they didn't yet outgrow that gymnasium. (laughs) Uh, Here they are worshipping in the gym, and you can see the first minister of court rate, Bob Betridge, there. And flags, and there we go, thank you. They soon moved on to Centennial High School, they outgrew the gym, and they began to look for a permanent home. And they purchased some land at the corner of Scottsdale and Courtright. Next slide, please. And they broke ground on it in 1983. Next. And it began, the building building began to go up. Next. There it is. Today, that building is Hospice Wellington, because uh, Courtright outgrew that building eventually. Next. But even as we were getting comfortable in a building, we had people going out in tents. And that's partly why this tent is here, to remind us that God sends us out into the mosquitoes and to serve him in places that we might not have expected to go. Here is a pan-mission team working on building something, a church uh, probably, uh, in Nicaragua. Next. Once we'd outgrown our original facility, the one we owned at Scottsdale and Cortright, uh we began to look for a new building. And in 2005, Courtright purchased this building, the building that we began worshipping in uh, 25 years earlier. Next. Some other highlights of our story. The year that uh, the McLeods moved to Guelph, that wasn't the miracle of 2010, by the way. <laughs> uh this great new building that we'd purchased turned out to have been kind of a dud is the way i hear the story told and we found out that there were problems in the roof and there was going to be a huge price tag to fix it which was seemed like terrible news and a huge setback for the church and the story goes that uh two people in the congregation um found out about grant a government federal government grant and at the last minute the night before the deadline they thought well let's apply And so they did, and there was a bit of a debate. Do we ask for the whole amount that you're eligible for? Do we ask for just, you know, you should be smart, right, and ask for just a little bit, better chance to get the grant. And they said, no, let's go for the whole thing. And they got it, $800,000 from the government. And as a tithe on that grant, we raised 10% of the total in an offering in one Sunday for Habitat for Humanity. Next slide. Where is God taking us as we... Get comfortable in our new sanctuary. We know that we are not, as the church, we are not the building. We are the body of Christ, and all of us have a part to play in it. So as we dedicate our sanctuary today, uh, we will be asking God also to show us what he has in store for us. To lead us on a path that we trust will not only be one of growth, and of renewed vitality, but also of reaching out more and more, not getting too comfortable in those soft seats where you are currently resting. But I don't know if we'll go out in tents, but our prayer for 2020 and beyond is that God will show us the ways that he wants us to be missional, and not just to be here, but to be a blessing to the city of Guelph, to seek its peace and prosperity. Now, I have some people I need to thank for the work that went into this beautiful room and the adjacent rooms, and I'm going to name them, and please hold your applause till the very end, but these are people who put in countless hours of work, and we are so grateful to them, to Mary McLeod to Doug Hayes, to Ken Phillips, and to Les Ferrier, our big four, our Renault team. Also to Dennis Gray, to Doug Martin, Kevin and Robin Ferrier, to Dennis Mortley. And forgive me if I'm missing any names. We also want to thank the good people from Dacon who did the work. And we want to thank Viana and also Dave. I understand that Corinne Maloney, our architect, is here today. Thank you, Corinne. And we want to thank the interior designer, Don Anderson Vaughn. We have so much to be thankful for. And so what I want to invite you to do now is to join me in prayer. And we're going to offer up prayers of thanksgiving, and I want to start by focusing them on this room, because that's what we're dedicating today. Um, so there may be something about this room, the lack of mosquitoes, perhaps, that you are really grateful for, and also for our church more generally. Um, so as you feel comfortable doing so, I would invite you to pray out loud prayers of thanksgiving, So let's pray. I'll get us started. Dear God, we have so much to thank you for. You are a good and generous God. And we thank you for the successful completion of this project to renovate the sanctuary. We thank you that you have been with us from the beginning of it, from long before that even, until this day and will be for so much longer. And so we lift up to you now prayers of thanksgiving for this space and all that it represents. Dear God, we have so much to be thankful for. There are people who have given freely and have spent hours in meetings to evaluate plans, to secure trades, to meet with public officials, to nail studs, to attach drywall, lay tile, paint walls, pull wires, move chairs, mop floors in order to make this day happen. For that team and for the time and resources that stand behind this project, we give you thanks. Holy Spirit, you gave us a dream born out of faith in you and a broad vision for sharing your love and advancing your kingdom here in this city. We pray that this room would be a gathering of your people for the worship of you. We pray for your word to be our rock and our refuge to inspire a renewed vision of who we are together in Christ. We pray for warm hospitality to emanate out of this room. We pray for a greeting to strangers, to those who are in difficulty, for changed lives. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your faithfulness as we celebrate today this gift of a newly renovated sanctuary. You have provided it and we dedicate it to you and to your purposes. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to invite you to, uh, give your little pieces of paper now to, uh, this side. Oh, if you can, if you can hand them down to the end of the row, uh, then they will be collected and Justin's going to incorporate that into his prayer later. Uh, right now I want to invite Kresha Lear up to the front. Even as we dedicate our sanctuary, we're thinking about uh, a lot of things, including the election of elders. And Kresha is here today to share a little bit about what her call to be an elder has looked like and to remind us to pray for that election.
2: Forgive me for a moment. I need to change my glasses. confession to make about being an elder. I like it. Oh, I'm supposed to hold this. Really? Not because being an elder comes with special privileges. Later, I'm going to take my turn getting coffee like everyone else. Yet at the same time, now here is where I belong. In the past two years, I've had my skills, experiences, and who I am used in challenging and yet satisfying ways. I've been able to contribute to the well-being of God, of court, of Courtright, and I trust God's kingdom work. So I'm confessing this because being on session has had a bad rap. I mean, people even feel sorry for you. <laughs> and here we are seeking new members, uh, new elders on the team. I suspect that some of you are even tempted to avoid calls from current elders in the coming week, you know, in case. So I want to make my pitch today for being an elder and indeed for serving at Corite in other ways. So the, uh, the objections often are, it takes too much time, I'm not good enough, I couldn't do a budget or outreach or Fill in the blank. So let's check these out together. Time. I agree that eldering and other roles can take a chunk of time and even be frustrating. And yet, it's fulfilling, as are other worthwhile activities. I and mean, that was my experience when I served on the National Council of the Editors Association of Canada. I'm not good enough. True. But none of us are. And yet, as we've heard today, God is working in us. God is redeeming us. And that's the beauty of his grace. He works in and through us. And another thing, as I've made peace with my limitations over the years, I've had more and more freedom to depend daily on the Holy Spirit and in very practical ways, including computer repair. (laughs) <laughs> as for skills, as you all know, God has equipped each of us in some way for ministry. As an elder, I couldn't project manage this renovation or do some things as naturally as other elders uh, on session. That's fine with me because God has designed us, has designed us to work in community in teams where he pulls our strength. And that's what I depend on and actually enjoy, seeing that happen. Bottom line, serving at Courtright is a small way for me to express my thanks to God. This morning, as I reviewed my testimony, I pictured myself up here, looking out, because I wanted to kind of rehearse in my mind. But what happened was, it gently morphed, and I realized in a deeper, profound way how much God loves each of us, each of you, as individuals, and us as a body. Not as data to be manipulated, not as resources to be moved up, But as the people, he has redeemed us to be. And then I had this impression of the cross and the open tomb of the resurrection. Thanks be to God.